We're not going to do any announcements today. We're going to get right into the Word. So open up your Bibles to John chapter 12. And uh, as you get there, I titled this uh, sermon, Nothing Spectacular. It's probably the heading in your Bible, and it's that Mary anoints Jesus. And as I was typing the title this morning, I did a typo, over, typo and it said, Marty um, anoints Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's silly. Marty would like that. And then I was reminded that Marty, Cara, from our body is in um, a hospital in Portland with just a, he's had a horrific heart attack and it's just um, been something he's been pretty much in a coma for the last three weeks and has kind of come out of the coma stage a little bit and is able to kind of motion and make some gestures, but he's just in a desperate state right now. And I thought that funny little typo would be a good reminder for us to pray for him today. So you guys pray for Marty and Susie with me together. And uh, Lord, we just think of uh, the Cara family, uh, that they just joined our church about a year ago. And um, while in their senior years, they're newly married, two years in their marriage, and uh, already just going through a, probably the fight of um, their life and his life. And, and I just would pray over them right now with their family, the church Uh, that you would be near, God, that you would give them peace and comfort. I know that there's a lot of frustration with some things um, just going on with Marty not being able to drink or um, just just feeling like there's just not progress that's happening. And and, uh, even a one-year kind of life expectancy after a heart attack like that. And so we just love them. We think of just the way that they've been even involved in this church. And we pray you just be near right now. Let your presence Uh, comfort their heart, lift their eyes to you, and trust in you, Lord. I know that they trust you, but give them a trust thrust today as the church prays for them. And Lord, as we get into John chapter 12, and we see this example of not Marty, but Mary anointing Jesus, this great sacrificial worship, um, do something in our church that would take us deeper, as the kids were singing, deeper waters, running into deeper waters. And we pray that that would be the case for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, continuing on in the Gospel of John, you can flip there, chapter 12, uh, following up from 11 where Jesus miraculously rose Lazarus from the grave. Um, That's a miracle would be an understatement, right? Um, It's you know, stupendous that we celebrate Resurrection Sunday a few weeks ago, Easter Sunday, and we just, our hearts revel in joy with that our Savior is not dead in a grave over in Israel, but that he's alive and he's at the right hand of the Father and he ever lives to make intercession for us today. No one else has that, by the way. No other faith has that. No other religion has that. We got that, all right? Our God is not dead, but he's alive. And by the way, there's been incredible legal experts, journalists, investigative journalists, judicial uh, judges, professors, 
who actually hated Christianity and went out to disprove it and prove that Jesus was dead and maybe it'll just shut those annoying Christians up. And as they were fair inquirers, they discovered that Jesus indeed had risen from the dead and is the Lord of all eternity and every heart must bow before him and worship in adoration. So that's pretty awesome, right? By the way, no one else has that. No, like nothing compares even to just, just be fair, do your research and you'll find Jesus is it. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So give your heart to him this morning. All right. But uh, I'm not trying to be like rude about it, but what's your problem? Like, I mean, what else do you want? Okay. Um, And not only did he rise from the dead, but he was raising people from the dead. Okay. I can't do that. I mean, I've got a few talents, you know, I can wiggle my Adam's apple really awesome and it grosses people out. In high school, I impressed the ladies by holding a pencil in my Adam's apple, and they were like, how does he do that? It's a mystery, you know? Uh, But Jesus went around, and he's like casting out demons, you know? He's casting out demons that no one else could even, um, you know, touch. He's healing leprous diseases and telling the leper who's healed, go show yourself to the priest because it's written in the book of the law. You need to go show yourself to the priest after this healing happens. And by the way, it's never happened before. No one's ever been healed of this disease. So go take care of that and go show yourself to the priest. And by the way, it'll point to me being the Lord of all eternity, all right? The savior of the world. And so uh, chapter 11, Jesus rose Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, from the dead. He'd been dead for four days. That was annoying to Mary and Martha. And, you know, that's maybe an overstatement. They were grieved that Jesus hadn't made it to the ER sooner to anoint him with oil, you know, and, and bring a healing. But Jesus says, it's because I love Lazarus and it's because I'm about the Father's mission that I waited t- till four days because you yourselves know that the rabbis taught that the spirit of a dead man would hover over the dead body for four days. By the time corruption set in and the decay began to put a little stanky in there, uh, then that spirit would just flutter off to never, never land. You know, by the way, that's a rabbinical tradition. That's not like a biblical thing. And so Jesus said, just to prove to everyone that this guy was dead, dead, dead. The spirit's not even around. Uh, I'm going to rise him from the dead now. And he did that. And many Jews believed and Jesus for that. And so that takes us to chapter 12. Well, now there's a celebration feast happening at Lazarus's home. Um, you know, what do you do when, you know, you go to the wake of a dead man and homeboy ain't dead anymore? Like, what do you do? I'll tell you what you do. There's a whole lot of cake and there's a whole lot of tater tot casserole that isn't going to eat itself. Okay. And so you still have a party, all right? And apparently there was a gathering, all right? There were some people around to observe this feast that's happening with the formerly dead Lazarus, his two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus, the hero of the story, okay? So let's check it out. Look at verse one. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised uh, from the dead, okay? So uh, just a little bit of a context here. Uh, If Jesus had arrived at Bethany, which is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, it's about two miles from Jerusalem. It's where Jesus is going to um, do the triumphal entry from the next day. Okay, so it's the Sabbath beginning. This dinner is described probably being on Saturday evening. And so there's going to be a great feast happening. And then the next morning, there's going to be uh, some donkey uh, riding and some Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, stuff going on. 
Um, and so that's just a little bit of the time frame and a little bit of the locational context there in Bethany. Uh, and so we see that it was at the uh, place of Bethany, and it was where Lazarus had been risen uh, from the grave. Mark, and you might just go ahead and kind of flip over to Mark chapter 14, because that's another uh, account of what we're going to read. Mark tells us that this next event happens at the house of Simon the leper, okay? And by the way, this just shows us a little bit of the type of people that Jesus hung out with, okay? Lepers were considered unclean. They were stinky. They were um, people that, you know, the limbs were falling off due to rot and the nervous system breaking down. Uh, now, Simon the leper is believed to have been healed, no longer a leper, but this is the guy that Jesus still was with. He was a guy that Jesus hung out with. Um, Simon the leper was presumably known to Mark's readers, but he's kind of unknown to us, probably had had some sort of leprous disease, unless that was just a mean, cruel nickname from high school, you know, uh, hey, leper, leper, leprosy, all my limbs are falling off of me, you know, or whatever. Um, but probably has been healed and some believe and make a connection that Simon the leper is actually the father of Mary, Martha and Lazarus. There's not a ton of evidence there. But there's been some, a little bit of traditional hypothesis on that. And so there, nevertheless, Mark tells us that they're at the house of Simon the leper in the town of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then look at verse 2. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So again, the guest of honor, totally Jesus but the whole celebration is because of what Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead. So Lazarus is at his own wake. You know, I think, isn't it Huck Finn or something where he goes to his own funeral and he's like up in the rafters, like, what is, you know, how will people feel about me? You know, if, and so he's watching his own funeral and Lazarus at his own funeral and at the wake celebration, probably saying, hey, you guys had prepared some speeches about how much you loved me. Why don't you go ahead and stand up and read those things? I'm here now and might as well celebrate. And, uh, and so they're, uh, they're there with Lazarus. And imagine what that must have been like, though. You know, you've got a guy that had just been risen from the dead after four days of being in Abraham's bosom. Uh, just so you know, before the resurrection of Jesus, if you were dead, if you were a, a wicked, unrighteous person, you'd go to one side of Hades called Hades and then, or, or shale, and then there was a great chasm, and on the other side of the chasm was more of a place of rest and paradise called Abraham's bosom, okay? You can read more about it in Luke chapter 16, and, uh, and so Lazarus had been in a place of rest and beauty and paradise, although not the final beautiful place, not the final paradise, nor even the throne room of God, but uh, in Abraham's bosom. So there's a little bit of what happens to you after you died before the resurrection of Jesus theology, just in case you were wondering. Uh, so here's Lazarus again. By the way, the name of the parable of the guy that died in Luke chapter 16 and was down in Abraham's bosom, his name was also Lazarus. Okay, just fun fact number two for you, or 10, whatever number we're on at the moment. Okay, and you can just picture like, so what was it like? What was it like to die? What was it like to be in Abraham's bosom, you know? And he's like, forget all that. We're sitting next to Jesus, you know? 
And then he's eating some hummus and some falafel, you know, and he's kind of like, by the way, this is a little bland after all the flavorful, flavorful foods that I've had in Abraham's bosom. You know, what are, what are we serving? Uh, and so there he is. He's with Jesus. There's this great supper taking place. Mary, Martha, Lazarus are there, and they are reoccurring figures throughout the gospels. Okay. Let's look at Luke chapter 10, 38. It's going to just be kind of a fun little story that reminds us of um, who these siblings are. Luke 10, 38 says, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. And so you're going to see that this is a little bit of how the relationship always kind of will be, okay? Martha will be kind of the initiator and the hospitable one. Uh, Mary will be more of the like hanging out with the guests, not really helping much. And isn't that the true for every one of our homes? You know, you got the one that just wants to play with all the guests and, and, and then the other one's like, am I supposed to be cooking all this by myself in here? You know, and uh And so Mary would sit at Jesus' feet and hear his word, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sisters left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. By the way, I'm always reminded of the Brady Bunch. Do you remember? Marsha, 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 you know? And, um, And so here we have Martha, 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 okay? You are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, all right? One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. This is, in a way, and maybe you'll catch it, there's some parallels to that initial time that Jesus spent with those siblings to what we're going to read of today, okay? And just see if you can catch it. So we're in verse 3 of John chapter 12. There's a feast happening, right? There's a supper. Lazarus is sitting at the table with Jesus. Imagine the heart of Mary. Her brother had been dead. They've been grieving for four days. Uh, Five, if you count, kind of the potential of the death taking place. Uh, And so there was just grief happening. But now there's just incredible awe and wonder at this Jesus who'd risen the brother from the dead. What would you do, by the way, if this was you? If you were Mary... What would you do if Jesus had just resurrected your brother whom you love from the dead and now you're at his wake, which has turned into a celebration? What would you do? Well, here's what Mary did. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. You might think, well, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) Okay, you gotta understand there's some cultural differences here, okay? Um, And with that, there was a bit of a breach of etiquette for a Jewish male to be interrupted in a feast um, by a female. Mark reminds us in his version, though, and often throughout uh, the Gospel of Mark, that societal and even Jewish values are not necessarily equated 
with Jesus's values. And so this woman comes and she's going to do what is all that was, it's, it's a symbol of all that's within her heart. And she takes this pound or a half liter of very costly oil. Mark tells us that this oil was in an alabaster flask or this jar made of the stone uh, alabaster. It's an onyxed marble type stone. Uh, It's known as Egyptian alabaster or oriental alabaster. I'm not much of a jar guy, you know, although all of our drinking glasses in our house are mason jars now. It's like all the old wedding dishes are breaking and all the homemade jams are coming into the house. So now all we have are jars, you know, and so uh, we use them for everything, right? Any amens there? You're like, I hear you. Okay. Um, that's, that's all you get out of this sermon, then you've really missed the point, but here's some different amens for some other. Okay. Uh, and I just was reading that this Oriental alabaster is a limestone with swirling bands of cream and brown. It would be admired as a decorative stone. And, uh, and Mark is going to describe the contents and John will also point out to these four different terms that will show us of its worth. It was very costly. Okay, in just a few verses, we're going to find that it was worth 300 denarii, all right? A denarii was a day's wage for a regular working person, okay? So if you take away all the Sabbaths and the things where they wouldn't work, you'd have 300 days wages, which is a year's worth of wages. So consider your year's uh, worth of of wages, worth of wages, okay? Think of what you make. Some of you are like, $10,000 a year, okay? Uh, and that, you know, taking that and bringing it before the Lord, this oil that was worth 300 denarii, we see that in just a little, or as John puts it very costly, um, oil of spike nard. Okay. Or a perfume of the plant, almost like a pistachio, uh, coming out of India, very valuable Himalayan oil. Nowadays, our perfumes are made up mostly of um, alcohol based, but back then they were made out of just the crushings out of the plants and they were much thicker uh, in consistency. Uh, You can put that into your imagination as you're going to read what she does with the oil in just a little bit. Um, But it was definitely this fragrant ointment or perfume. And so what does she do with this alabaster jar worth her uh, a year's wage? Uh, perhaps it's even her dowry that she's saving up for her wedding day to give away to her husband or her husband's family as uh, kind of like just that gift that the, uh, the wife's father would give over to the groom's family. Perhaps she's taking almost everything that she's had saved up and giving it to Jesus. But it's just a really sweet picture because she just kind of uncorks the top, you know, and puts a little on a fingertip, you know, and she says, your wrists, my liege, you know, and Jesus gives the wrist and he's like, bing, 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 and then kind of puts a little behind his ear and then they go on with the feast. Is that what happens? What does she do with this alabaster jar? Mark tells us she breaks the jar. All right, or she would knock the top off, which just completely destroys any future use of the jar or the perfume. It's all in right now. It's all got to be used at this point. 
And in John, we see that she focuses on his feet, all right? She pours this oil out on his feet. Now, it's no probably secret to you that the feet back in those times, and even in these times, uh, grody, okay? You're wearing open-toed sandals, tevas, you're cruising around, you're not riding in your, you know, Volkswagen, you know, or your Mercedes, where your feet don't really get dirty. You're cruising around barefoot, and uh, it, I've been to Israel a few times, but it was like my 2004 trip that I went to Israel, and we went to what was called Abraham's uh, tent, okay? So just outside of Jerusalem, there's this guy who makes a living giving you an Abraham tent experience. And so the bus parks like outside of some barbed wire. You know, I'm just kidding. I don't think there's barbed wire, but you know, there's a gate and he comes out with his camel. And he's like, my friends, my friends, you know, and he's like, oh, welcome to my house. I mean, my tent, you know, and it's over there. And, and he brings the camel over. He's like, would anybody like a ride to the tent? And a couple people from your bus hop on the camel and he takes you over to the tent. And guess which Lakeview country boy took his Tiva and stepped right in a big old camel dew. It was this one. I was the only guy from Lakeview on the trip, actually. And so I step in the dung, okay? And you guys imagine, you guys know how that is. It goes into the flip-flop and it's up through the toes. And you're, so Abraham's, the whole bus, and you're just like, I'm coming. And it was such a relief that by the time we got to the tent, he had a pitcher of water and he would pour it on our feet as we would go into the tent. And, and so all the people are going in and they're just rinsing their feet off. And I'm like... You're going to need that whole picture right here. Do you have like a garden hose? You know, get down in there. Okay, crevices get and underneath my... Okay, got all clean, went in, sat down, bunch of banqueting. It was really an awesome experience. Um, by the way, put on your calendar November 2022. Okay, working on an Israel trip right now. Anyways, uh, so we're there and we're sitting. And just one more fun fact. It was there while we were sitting that some mice were running underneath the tables. And we're hitting them with our tevas. Okay, it's not the point. The point is, Jesus, his feet, you know, had a little dust on them, okay? And he would end up going very soon uh, within the week and washing his friend's feet, even his enemies, the one who was going to betray him. These are toes that have Judean dust on them. These are toes that have a little bit of camel, you know, hay on them, you know? And, uh, and, and Mary goes down to wash these feet in worship. Now, the other gospels point to that she took this flask of very costly oil of spike nard or pure genuine uh, nard oil from these pistachio type flowers and uh, and she pours it over his head and the amount of this pound of oil would be about 12 ounces so imagine a pop can size full of this thick fragrant beautiful fragrant oil and so the other gospels focus on the head, the whole body of Jesus, down to what John describes as uh, washing his feet with her hair. And, and then the final little phrase there is that, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Mention of this fact that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume suggests extravagant love, D.A. Carson said, but also that there's a fragrance in the act itself that's going far beyond the event itself. 
And we're going to see this fragrance is actually going to, uh, it'll become tangible and palpable for us as we kind of get into some of the controversy behind her act of worship here. As she wipes his feet with her hair, uh, it was F.F. Bruce that says, a woman to let down her hair and wipe a man's feet with it would have at least it would have been at least as extraordinary in the eyes of that company as it would be for us on a comparable occasion, and probably more so. Bruce, who's known to be the historian of the scripture, says, the shock of what they had seen must have caused a brief, embarrassed silence, which was broken by one voice who would give expression to the sentiments of many. Everyone in the room is uncomfortable right now. Just, I mean, in this room, I can tell. And also in that room, okay? Jesus is there. There's a celebration happening. It's a lighthearted moment. And then Mary comes in and just ruins it all. No, she's not ruining it all. But it is something that's a little bit of, it's got some shock value to it. She comes and she breaks, you know, no doubt Lazarus and and Mary, maybe even Simon the leper, see the family heirloom in her hands. What a little dabble do ya? No, no, a dabble do ya, you know, and and then she pours it out in worship, a symbol that she was all in. Total drama right here, but in a good way. A dramatic gesture that demonstrated that she was unreserved in her devotion to Jesus. All out, unreserved, holding nothing back. It's similar to David in the, in the book of, uh, it would be 2 Samuel, where he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and he is so thrilled that the Ark of the Lord is coming back home after years of being in the enemy's hands, right? Enemy's hands. And as he's coming in with the priests carrying the Ark and the marching band celebrating and the whole town and the whole city are thrilled that the Ark of the Covenant is coming in, David strips down to his linen ephod, you know, which is just kind of like his swim trunks, you know, or, you know, his, his little whitey tidies that he's got going on. And he is so thrilled. He's just like with reckless abandon, worshiping the Lord, dancing, you know, he probably had kind of a You know, and his wife is looking out the window with sentiments that I could hear my own wife saying, oh, doesn't the king just look spectacular out there doing a little jig in his, you know, in his whitey tidy. I mean, I don't know what else you call him, you know, his, his BVDs, you know, or whatever, you know, he's got those jock, jocker, jock, anyways, we'll move on. Jockeys. Yeah. For the looms, you know. Can't think of brand names since I never was allowed to buy the brand names. Okay, um, so he is just shamefully worshiping the Lord. And Michael, his wife, Mike—it's probably not pronounced Michael, Michael, or something. She rebukes him for this display that's shameful, embarrassing to the wife, no doubt. Everyone's looking like, "What do you think of this?" Like, stop it, you know. And David says, you're missing out on the gravity of what is happening for the glory of God and for Israel right now, that the ark is coming back home. And I will be even more undignified than this, David says. 
Now, we don't want to abuse a text like that, nor abuse a text like John chapter 12. We know that scripture is our seatbelt to make sure we stay on point in the way we worship the Lord. We know that nothing is done um, undecently or out of order in the way that we worship God. And yet at the same time, you have some precedent for people that just out of the overflow of their heart, they are expressing in a way that maybe goes against culture around them just how deeply they want and need Jesus and value the glory of God. For David, he didn't mind, you know, maybe showing his swimsuit a little bit, you know. For Mary, she is totally fine wrecking the family uh, alabaster vase and giving all that she has of her future, of any comfort and luxury or a dowry to give a husband and saying, it is all for you, Jesus. You are worth every bit of it, okay? By breaking that jar, she's saying, I can think of nothing in the future that is gonna be more of a valuable moment in my life than right here, right now, The Lord of heaven, the creator of the universe, who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who has power over death. He's in my home. He's healed my brother. This is it. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I ever was and am and ever hope to be. My life is completely yours. And she's worshiping the Lord. And it is there that we have an example, you guys, of a gift of adoration and a gift of worship to the Lord. We ought to take note today in 2021 Primeville because for many of us, it shows that we don't have the same value for Christ that Mary had on that day, nor did even some of Jesus's own disciples. And let's look at that real quick. It says in verse four, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Okay, Uh, now when you hop back to Mark 14, 4, Mark's a little more general, and he says that there were some who were in the midst, some who were indignant among themselves, and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Okay, so looking at Mark's account, he says that he doesn't pinpoint it being Judas. He says that there were actually some that in this kind of embarrassing moment, shocking moment, some got a little red in the face and became indignant, which is a real fancy way of saying very angry and very grieved. They were expressing anger and displeasure And they speak about it, as Bruce says, in some length, okay? The Greek uh, word enembramonto speaks of uh, that it was a tirade of long length that they went off on Mary for what she was doing, okay? So they were indignant, very angry, and they let her have an earful because of the way that she was worshiping Jesus. Does it remind you of Michael and the way that she was rebuking David as he came into Jerusalem? They say in Mark's gospel, why is this fragrant oil being 
wasted. What are you doing with that oil? You're wasting it on Jesus. What does that tell you about their mindset? Their mindset is that the oil, a year's wage, is worth more than Jesus. That this woman needs some perspective, all right? She needs a dose of reality. This guy's just a dude. This is your dowry. Dowry versus dude. What are you doing? It shows that they don't have the value in their heart for Jesus that Mary had toward, uh, toward him. And Mark tells us that they criticized her sharply, sternly warning her, scolding her, moved with anger in the language they were snorting with the flaring of their nostrils and telling her to stop it. Okay, this is strong language in the original Greek. I think it was Carson uh, that said, their condemnation obviously demeans the woman and her gift in asserting that there could be a better use for the money. However, they demean Jesus as well, whom they regard as unworthy of such extravagance. It was uh, Carson that goes on to say, the world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much wealth or power or sex or influence, but it has a problem with too much religion. That is evident here. The unnamed woman in Mark's gospel, in John it's named as Mary, the unnamed woman deems Jesus worthy of her sacrifice, whereas the disciples do not. They rebuked her harshly. This whole year's worth of wages of oil, the sum is enormous. And the disciples led by Judas in this rebuke, because John tells us that it was uh, Judas, they displayed a certain utilitarianism that pits pragmatic compassion and concerns for the poor against extravagant, unqualified devotion. Carson said, if self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. I don't know if you caught how current that phrase from Carson is. Let me read it again. If self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. Okay? Judas, in his um, hypocritical philanthropy, is pushing out devotion and adoration and worship, literal worship, proskeneos, on your knees falling in worship is what the Greek means. That is being pushed out for, in Judas's case, hypocritical philanthropy. And verse six tells us that it's hypocritical on his part. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, 
right? But because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put into it. And so with Judas, his case is worse than even the other disciples who might be protesting. As Judas is leading the protest, he has a personal greed for material things that was masquerading as, um, you know, humanitarianism or um, a justice type ministry. And it says here that he would lift from the money box in in the uh, UK English to lift something meant to steal it. You know, they, uh, well, you can think of when you've seen it in movies or whatever. Yeah, they lifted the the bank or the wallet, you know, they lifted it. Okay. He would lift or take out of that money box, money that was to actually be used for um, this ministry to the poor. Judas was lifting it and taking it and stealing it and embezzling it for himself. Okay. Um, Jesus stands up for her and says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Uh, Mark expounds just a little. Jesus says, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She is doing a good work for me. Leave her alone. And I love that Jesus defends her. By the way, Jesus is our defense as well. Jesus is the one who just speaks up for us and stands as our mediator against the accuser in the heavens. There's so much to glean from Mary's sacrificial worship here. Uh, I didn't have it written down in my notes as organized as it might be in my mind or unorganized as it might be in my mind, but will you go with me for a moment and learn the lesson from Mary's gift and let's transpose it to our gift to the Lord in 2021 Prineville and what that might look like. So we have Mary maybe sometimes busting out of some cultural norms of her day by kind of interrupting the, uh, the dinner and, and causing a scene of worship, okay? And I think that that's something good for us to, new, to learn in our worship of the Lord, that we would maybe break out of our comfort zone just a little bit. What we're comfortable with or what's maybe something that real Prineville men might do as they would enter into the house of the Lord, you know, or Prineville gals, you know. Um, again, this is all undergirded with the scripture that like Calvary Chapel guys, we're decent, we're in order, we're not interrupting the preaching of the word, we're not making a scene and getting everyone's attention on us and robbing glory from the Lord, okay? So these are all just principles that we teach as we go through the word. At the same time, sometimes we are so bound by what we think men ought to do in our culture that we're not open to what the Holy Spirit is doing as we worship the Lord and give him glory and honor that is due to his wonderful, fantastic name above names. There's no one else like him, you know, heaven, earth, under the earth. No one is like him at all. And he's worth every ounce of our affection. Okay. Um, and so here she comes, she, she breaks down before the Lord. She crushes the most valuable thing she has in her possession because he is worth it. And then we must ask ourselves, what is that most valuable thing that I cherish on a, maybe a a Sunday basis, a weekly basis or a lifetime basis. And how does Jesus measure up to it? Okay. For some, I'm amazed when I'm talking to adults in Prineville, um, 
who say, oh my goodness, uh, service is at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. That's my day to sleep in. And it's like, what are you, like 14? You know, like 10 o'clock. Did you hear? Service is at 10 o'clock. Okay, my 14-year-old doesn't sleep until 10 o'clock. Okay, you're an adult, you know? So throw your diaper away when you get out of bed, put your church clothes on, and let's go. All right? Um, And so we all cherish the day off, right? Talk to some of these farmers around here and just ask them how do they liken their day off these days, okay? Uh, And so, all right, so it's Sunday, okay? Sunday fun day. Sorry, not, okay? Sunday the Lord's Day, okay? Lord's Day is fun day, amen? How many of us love the Lord's Day? Oh, man, you know my Sunday? I'm up before 5 o'clock. I'm studying, finishing my sermon, putting things together. I rush to the church, preach, greet, go home, eat a bite, hop in the car, drive to Polina, preach, fellowship. We're home 8, 9 o'clock on a Sunday. It is an entire day for the Lord. And just like the Gospel of Mark says, when that was the day the disciples had, it was a day well spent, all right? It's a fun day, but it's not your day. It's the Lord's day since the beginning of church history, since day one, Easter Sunday. Okay. So how, how valuable is Jesus for you and your fun, like fun day, Sunday. All right. Going out, shredding some dirt, you know, planting the garden, uh, going to the bike park, you know, whatever it might be, uh, lounging by the lake shore. Okay. That's wonderful. I love it too. How about Jesus? How about remembering him? How about fellowship with the saints, using your gifts to edify the body, furthering and advancing the kingdom of heaven? How about eternity? Sunday fun day, all the rest of eternity, the souls of the people in your community and the world. Like, where's Jesus in the midst of this, okay? So take that alabaster flask of all that you value and all that you hold dear and crush it before Jesus and say, there's nothing that will ever come after this that is worth more than what I have with you right now, Jesus, okay? And as she crushes that, she is before the Lord in adoration and in reverence. She is ascribing greatness to his name, which Ron Halverson said once is like making water more wet, I mean, how do you give more glory to the Lord who is already all glorious? All right. I don't know, but we do it. Okay. As the psalmist says, ascribe greatness to the Lord and heap greatness on him. Which, by the way, I would love to just say, I encourage you guys to let the posture of your body reflect the posture of your heart in worship. Hear the posture of Mary, which she was, you know, anointing his head and anointing his feet and was in reverence using her hair, the crown of her head to gloriously wipe and cleanse. There may not have been a cloth around. I don't know. All right. I'm not versed in that. uh, What was up with the hair thing, you know, but to her, the crown of the glory of her head was cleaning the king of glory. Okay, and cleaning his feet, the dirty part, as I mentioned earlier, okay? And she, her body was reflecting the posture of her heart there. I want to tell you guys, it is a biblical thing to kneel before the Lord in worship, okay? Christians, it's time to get there. In our private prayer lives and in our public prayer lives, if you're too proud to kneel before the Lord, there's something going on in your heart that's not right. It's a biblical thing. 
to stand in the presence of the Lord. It's a biblical thing to lift your hands up in the presence of the Lord and to worship him. All right. And in Israel, as I've learned while I'm there, uh, I've learned that in that culture of the Jews, as they are ascribing greatness to the Lord, oftentimes their hands are facing out as they worship the Lord. And as they're receiving from the Lord and they're crying out for the Lord to bless them in their household and to give them power to preach the gospel. A lot of times they have their hands just more in a, uh, in a, in a reverse fashion, you know. And of course, Tim Hawkins, the comedian, isn't he hilarious with all the different, you know, hand positions that, you know. Like, yeah, you know, you got the field goal as you're worshiping the Lord. You know, you got to carry the big screen TV as you're worshiping the Lord. You know, you got the, all of that. And it's all good fun. And you know me, I love a hilarious joke. But don't let the hilarious joke make a joke out of our worship to where you're just like, no, I just couldn't worship the Lord in a receptive posture. Because someone behind me is going, you're doing the hold the big screen TV pose again. Like, don't let the comedy ruin the real genuine glory of what might be happening in that moment. Let your voice, it's a biblical thing for us to sing to the Lord, to shout to the Lord. All right, from the youngest to the oldest, the men and the women shout to the Lord. Learn that now. Don't waste your life not being someone who's vocal about the glory of the Lord. All right, don't, yeah, there's going to be the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the guys that are wanting with their hypocritical philanthropy and they think they got good reasons for it and they might come later and just jostle you about it. Forget it. Forget it. Sing to the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord. We sang it today. Guys, go back and watch the, the video from this morning's worship. All the songs were just like everything about what, what I think is going on in this for us today. Um, you know, my dad, uh, you guys, you don't even understand what a hero my dad was to me and to many people. My dad, just such an incredible young man. Uh, he was a wrestler in high school, three-time state champion wrestler for Henley High School. Uh, also Greco-Roman style state champion. Went to Washington State University, wrestled on a scholarship, left his scholarship to go back and ranch because dad called his dad called him back to the ranch because uh, he was needed on the ranch. So he went. And I'm telling you, growing up with that guy, so state champion wrestler, I mean, he was just cut and ripped and good looking and he rode these horses. And I just, I remember watching him lope a horse across the field and that horse is all frothy and just been working hard all day. And my dad, and I just like, there is no one like that guy. I mean, he is so cool. And my whole life, my dad was a man of integrity, a man that worked hard, a man that left Kind of a, a bit of an abusive family ranch situation to go back to vet school. Went through vet school with Hodgkin's disease while he was having a bone marrow transplant. Had no hair while he graduated from vet school at Oregon State University. And the whole uh, LaSalle Stewart Center stood and applauded for him as he and one other student both got uh, their vet degree while they had cancer. And uh, just talk about a hero, right? And uh, started his own veterinary practice, had people coming after him, you know, and reporting him to boards and all kinds of things because they were jealous of him, all things like that. But you want to know one thing that out of all the things that I think of my dad, and I just love the time I had with my dad, is after he had had his second type of cancer, a brain cancer that caused him to have a stroke and lose the whole left side of his body. Uh, to where I had to quit Bible college and go care for him and wash him, help him use the restroom, 
um, you know, pack him around, wheel him around. Um, I would wheel him into the front row of Calvary Chapel Lakeview. And, uh, and when I would lead worship there in Calvary, uh, he would push himself up with his one good leg and his one good arm. And he would stand and lift his only arm and shout to the Lord because out of all my dad's life, he knew that Jesus had been faithful and he was worthy to be worshiped. And he was worthy for a country boy that had no singing abilities, no singing abilities. Of all the good things my dad had going for him, he couldn't sing. And he would shout out and worship the Lord with a limp left hand being held and strapped by a gate belt. And I'll tell you what, if that man can do that, I guarantee every man in this room is awesome country boy as you are, hardworking guy, or a man with some self-respect. I'll tell you, the greatest way to show self-respect is to throw it all down like an alabaster flax before the glory, glorious God of heaven and give him the worship that's due to his name. Like, get over yourself, okay? Like, you think that I don't have pride in who I am that needs to just be crushed? I totally do. And I'm so thankful that God has given me, brought me to a place where you just got to lay it down. You got to worry about the guys who, oh, He's just doing that because, oh, she's just, oh, that, that's happened here. And Jesus is just saying to the critics, let them alone. Let them alone. And I've heard, I've gotten the emails, I've had the special calls to lunch by people that are just critical of the worshipers in this place, who, by the way, we're tethered to the Bible. We don't want to branch away from this. And you're just being critical, and God is robbing you of intimacy with Jesus. He's robbing you of being part of the voice of praise and the Shekinah glory that goes out of these four walls. And by the way, reaches that house every Sunday. Let them hear it. Let the glory of God go through those walls and reach that neighbor and that neighbor in this apartment complex right here. Let's let the Nazarene church in us raise up the glory of God in this neighborhood and uh, transpose uh, people's hearts in this neighborhood. So speaking of which, why don't we have the worship team come on up? Jesus says in verse eight, the poor you have with you always, but me, you do not have always. That would be such an arrogant thing for someone to say, unless it was true. Jesus looking forward to his crucifixion. He said, let her alone. She's anointing my body for burial. She's come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Just like Caiaphas last week spoke prophetically that one man must die so the rest of the nation might live, so is Mary's act of worship prophetic, and Jesus sees it. And he says, the reason she's doing this isn't just to anoint me as like king or really special house guest. She might not even know it yet, but in a week I'll be dead. And in a week she'll be bringing more spices to anoint my body. Leave her alone. She's doing something prophetic in her act of worship right now. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 9, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And where are we today? A couple thousand miles away in Oregon, USA. And we're remembering her and we are gleaning from her act of worship and saying, Lord, do that in our midst. Do that here, Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Later on, as you read the rest of the section by yourself, you see that many Jews would believe in Jesus because 
of the act that he did for Lazarus. And so why don't we stand together, you guys, and don't get me wrong, like maybe just be gracious with me and my encouragement that we branch out of our worship boxes, okay? I was raised conservative Baptist, okay? And I, I listened to the more conservative Baptists. I, I listened to some reform guys. Love them, love them. They sing different hymns and you're not gonna see certain things. And I get it and I respect them, I love them. Please, like some of you guys, like you're just like, man, I'm just, I'm, you're not gonna be seeing me like totally okay, totally okay. There's no condemnation. What you could maybe just hear from me is just let's just be free here to worship Jesus. Don't be ashamed to let that voice be heard. Don't be ashamed. And maybe today would be the day for you. You've never lifted your hands in worship. And I just encourage you, man, you in the house of the Lord, let yourself be free in giving God glory. It's just going to see it show itself out in the world where you're going to be giving God glory there. All right. And so maybe today might be one of the first days that you would be one of the righteous men that Paul tells Timothy would lift up their hands in prayer without wrath and without doubting. Just lift the Lord, lift your hands to the Lord and giving him praise. Maybe today would be the first day that you might want to come up front and just bow before the Lord and just say, you know what? I've been such a prideful, arrogant guy and I need to just cry out to the Lord like Mary did. And I need to break everything that I hold valuable before the Lord today and say, it's all yours. So maybe during this last song, you join others up front and just kneel at the altar and break your life open before the Lord. One way or another, as we close out today, let's let the fragrance of our worship fill this house. Amen. And maybe for you, this would be the first day. You're just not even a Christian when you came into this place. I'm I'm not a Christian. This is different for me. Give your life to Jesus right now. He rose Lazarus from the dead and his whole family saw that he's worth giving everything. So give him everything today. Become a Christian today. And just in the simplest way you know how, say, Jesus, my life is yours. Give me yours. Give me your life. Give me forgiveness of sins. Give me a new heart. Change my mind. Give me a new nature, Lord, that wants to live for you today. Cry that out to the Lord just in the privacy of your heart as we close down today. But let's let that aroma of our worship fill fill this house of praise. Go ahead.